This is the business of pleasure. I live life to enjoy it, and I don't really care what anybody has to say. I come from a family of strong women, and you know, I mean, I just, that's what I know. Because we're scared to talk about it. That is so crazy to me, because at the end of the day, everybody's doing it. People need to stop being so hush-hush about everything right. and so shy about everything because sex is not a bad thing. Welcome to the podcast, The Business of Pleasure, presented to you by Bedroom Candy. Bedroom Candy is a sexual health and wellness company and brainchild of Grammy-winning singer-songwriter and star of The Real Housewives of Atlanta, Miss Candy Burris. Our host and president of Bedroom Candy Boutique Parties, Nadine Thompson, takes an in-depth look at the people, products, and stories behind the nationwide home party company. New episodes are released Thursdays. Listen, learn, and enjoy. Welcome to this week's episode of The Business of Pleasure, brought to you by Bedroom Candy Boutique Parties. This is Nadine Thompson, the president of Bedroom Candy, and this week I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Tamara Griffin. Um, Dr. Tamara has been a consultant um, to the Bedroom Candy community, our sort of in-residence sex therapist. Uh, she has done a lot for the Bedroom Candy community, including uh, being a keynote speaker at, I think, all of our conventions that we've had. She's a beloved member of our community, somebody that we all love and respect more than anything else. And really, she has been a go-to resource for us when it comes to sex and sex therapy and understanding our bodies. And really, we're in the business of pleasure. We're in the business of helping our, our customers achieve more pleasure and joy in their lives. We're about wellness. We're about sex education. We're about inclusivity. We're about all of those good things. And Dr. Tamara often helps us answer those questions. What I think is important is being able to provide our consultants with the information that they can then pass on to their customers. It's about passing on this great information. And I know that from many of our very seasoned consultants, what I often hear is that they find though their parties are fun and they really sell the fun, they find that the parties where they sell the most and where they get the most pleasure and a sense of accomplishment out of is a party where they feel they're also able to educate their customers at the party about sex and intimacy and wellness and, you know, why use, you know, certain sex toys. So today I want to speak um, to Dr. Tamara about something totally different, which I'll get into. But first, welcome Dr. Tamara Griffin to our podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to, to chat with you today. I always love when we have an opportunity to, you know, to, to have a conversation because it's always very enlightening and empowering. And so, you know, I love the Bedroom Candy family, um, everything that you all do for women and men to um, educate and empower around our sexuality and our sexual health and our pleasure, most oh, importantly. Wonderful. Wonderful. It's really great to have you. Uh, you're one of the women I admire, so it's oh, great. When you. I think thank of you, you, I think about black girl magic. So, um, 
<laughs> what an honor. Thank you so much. <laughs> so when I'll read the, the first bit of your bio uh, and then we'll get into talking to you rather than me talking about you. So at age 13, Dr. Tamara Griffin told her mother that she wanted to be a sex therapist. Her passion is deeply rooted in providing individuals with the knowledge, tools and skills needed to embrace their sexuality. Dr. Tamara is a certified clinical sexologist, sex therapist, author, speaker, and radio host with more than 20 years experience speaking, writing, and teaching about human sexuality. She travels the country speaking, consulting, and providing extensive trainings to individuals, colleges, universities, businesses, and other organizations about healthy sexuality. Dr. Dr. Tamara is the author of several books, including Live Inspired, Feel Empowered, I Am Sex, A Comprehensive Guide to Understanding Women's Sexuality, and It's Not the Birds and the Bees, It's Sex, How to Talk to Children About Sexuality. Dr. Tamara is also currently the editor-in-chief for our Sexuality magazine, the premier magazine for women's sexuality and sexual health. So without further ado, I introduce to you um, Dr. Tamara Griffin. You can read more about her, by the way, online at drtamara.com. Is that correct? Yeah, drtamaragriffin.com, www.drtamaragriffin.com. Take a look and you can read more of her bio. Uh, She really is an accomplished, accomplished young woman. Um, who has been living out her purpose uh, since re- recognizing what her calling is at the age of 13. I think what is so wonderful about that, Dr. Tamara, is being able at 13 to identify or become aware of your calling and then the privilege and the joy and the courage and the resilience to be able to really not just realize what your calling was, but to be able to act on it, pursue it, get the degrees and do everything that you've done to become the Dr. Tamara Griffin that you are today. So let me start off by saying congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes. Um, you know, there I can honestly say without a doubt, there's nothing else in this world that I would rather do then educate and empower and inspire women to live out their authentic purpose and to be unapologetic and walk in their sexuality and to own their sexuality, to celebrate their sexuality and to embrace their sexuality. And so it's been an honor and a privilege um, to be able to do the work that I do and to see the transformation and the um, the experiences and the lives that have been changed and touched by the work that I've been able to be blessed to do. And so it's, it's very rewarding. It's very rewarding and it's very fulfilling. Um, it is challenging, but um, I, I love it and it's something that I always will always do. Right, right. Well, that's that's really wonderful. I knew at a young age, too, that I wanted to be um, a therapist and a social worker. I, I mean, I don't think that I knew I would have even used the word social worker. I, I don't think I would have called myself that. I, I was mm-hmm. always entrepreneurial. Um, it's really interesting. I sort of knew I would end up doing what I'm doing, which is entrepreneurship, the empowerment of women, 
um, you know, counseling, that kind of thing. I always knew that 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 was where I would be. Um, and it's always been my role and it's, it's an area that I'm comfortable in. So I think there's more to come for me, but, um, I, uh, I knew as well, but you were clear from 13 that you wanted to do the sex therapy. And so I find that really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I will even probably say before the age of 13, I always had a natural curiosity, um, about women's bodies because mm-hmm. when I was a young girl and I share part of this in the book, I am sex. I mean, even in, um, the, a love letter to every woman and girl, I talk about my story being, um, a young girl and my mother being, you know, very sick and really just trying to understand what was going on with her and why, you know, she was at the doctor a lot and so on and so forth. And, you know, come to find out she had reproductive health, you know, uh, challenges like endometriosis and just really trying to understand from a young age what that meant and watching my mother, you know, be shifted from doctor to doctor and, you know, the doctors weren't very culturally competent. They didn't demonstrate cultural humility. They didn't understand really the woman's body. But my mother, being the woman that she is, was an advocate for herself, and she's you know, and she was just um, she was just so uh, powerful in her in her advocacy, knowing that something was wrong with her body. And so she continued until she found a doctor who was able to just really listen to her and and work with her to help her understand and diagnose her correctly. And so seeing that from a young age and just asking questions, um, you know, out of curiosity, because kids are curious, we're curious, we want to know what's going on, you know, why this, why that. And so having that natural curiosity, just asking my mom those questions and then growing up, um, uh, having some of the same issues myself as a young a woman with endometriosis and fibroids, you know, ultimately having to have a hysterectomy and just really trying to figure out, like, what's going on with women's bodies. And because my mother was the type of woman that she is, she was very open because she wanted to break the cycle that um, that was going on in, in our family where, you know, great-grandma didn't talk to grandma, you know, grandma didn't talk to mom, and mom was determined to talk to talk to me so that I wouldn't make some of those same mistakes in terms of love and relationships and just not understanding my body that uh, she made growing up as a little girl because no one was there to talk to her. And so she made it her mission, you know, to make sure that I was empowered enough to, A, understand my body, but to, B, understand what relationships look like, um, to also understand sexuality. And so, because my mother is also a therapist, and so she talked to me, you know, from that standpoint of not just the physical, you know, standpoint of sexuality in terms of our body, but also, like, what does pleasure look like? I remember when I was 16 years old, her explaining to me what pleasure was, and she was very real in her... um, in her conversation, in her example, and she, and she, you know, she used something that was that that I could relate to. You know, she was like, "Hey, you know, it's just like chocolate. You know how you love chocolate, and once you have that bite of that Hershey bar, you know, you want another one because it tastes good. You like the way it makes you feel." And so that was her way of explaining to me what it felt, what pleasure felt like. And then she also used real life examples from you know TV shows and things that I could relate to to help me to understand and to better navigate my sexuality. And so her conversation was never just about the physical; it was about emotional, the mental, the spiritual, you know, aspects of sexuality and how all of those things begin to um, relate to us as young women and, and span uh, across our lives. Uh, our lives. And mm-hmm. so, again, my natural curiosity of attraction, why some people are attracted to other people and why love happens, the chemistry of love, the pheromones and hormones and how all these things interact in our body and just play out. And so, you know, I get very excited and I, even now just thinking about, you know, all of those things. And so, yeah, by the time I was 13, I was like, this is it. I want to be a therapist. 
you know, a sex therapist because my mother was the one talking to me about these things. And I thought to myself, you know, and it was just not just me. It was like the little girls from the church or my girlfriends from school who would come over because they couldn't talk to their mothers about it. So my mother was that safe space. And I thought like, wow, if these little girls don't have a person in their life to talk to, how many other little girls around the world don't have someone? And so, like I said, from the age of 13, I vowed to be that safe space, that person that women and girls could talk to about sexuality. And then when you look at um, race, you know, being a black woman, um, again, it's still so stigmatized. Sexuality is still so stigmatized and taboo within communities of color. And so I felt that if other black women, other women of color saw another black woman or a woman of color out here speaking and advocating and celebrating our sexuality, that we would know that it's okay to do the same. Right, right, right. Wow, that's that's great. The other thing that I wanted to talk about, I mean, everything that you just said, we could break down into pieces and just keep going. Uh But there's something in your new book. um, I was hoping we'd talk about your new book today called V, A Love Letter to Every Woman and Girl, A Comprehensive Guide to Understanding Vulval Vaginal Health, which I think is awesome. I wanted to take a moment and read something that I thought was very touching, and it was your dedication at the beginning of the book It says, a love letter to every woman and girl. My beloved, V is dedicated to you. We were created as beautiful beings. I pray that we learn to understand, honor, embrace, and celebrate our bodies. I pray that as we learn to respect our bodies, we increase the value of who we are and reduce our risk for sexually transmitted infections and HIV. We hold the power. Our bodies are a temple. Let us treat it as such. With all my love, Dr. Tamara. Yes. Uh, That's just really wonderful. Um, And I could ask you, what were you thinking? But you clearly say what you're thinking. So I I, (laughs) I just think it's a, a great letter to every young woman and girl. So tell us about um, V. I mean, I see it's divided up into some really great chapters um, there's the intro, and then it's time to address shame is chapter one. Female reproductive system is chapter two. Um, then you've got female reproductive system, physiology and function, the the pleasures of the female reproductive system, the pains of the feminine reproductive system, sexually transmitted infections of the female reproductive system, other concerns of the female reproductive system, removal of the female reproductive system, and the importance of reproductive health care and vulvovaginal health. Um, And then chapter 10, the final chapter is called The Charge. And Mm -hmm. the activity is a love letter to your vulva. So what I get even from just going over the intro to the book and the chapter descriptions, what you're talking about is the importance Um, of the female reproductive system and how it is really a core part of our being, Um, even with the removal of it, um, there still is some really deep emotional um, attachment to our reproductive systems as women. Um, There are consequences of having it. There are benefits of having it. 
it's a journey. It starts off where you're unaware about having it. You go into puberty and then adolescence, you're getting your period, you're struggling with that. You go into the young adult years. Some of us end up with fibroids and painful menstrual cycles and all of that. And then it kind of settles down, settles down in the middle years. And then you start going through menopause and mm-hmm. dealing with that. And then after menopause, there's, you know, your, your more mature years and you know, whether you're you're having as many orgasms or more than you used to, whether you're drier or wetter, and all of those things are important. But for women, our reproductive system isn't a static thing. It's something that is evolving and changing and maturing, but really going through cycles mm-hmm. with us, various mm-hmm. stages. And women can almost map out their lives Um, from getting their period to going through menopause, a lot of our life is wrapped around our ability or inability to reproduce. Yes. Um, This, I think, I love every book that I've ever written, but I really wanted to write a love letter, as you've indicated to women, about honoring and accepting our reproductive system because it's the core of who we are. Um, and when we don't understand our vulval vaginal health, you know, we put it at risk for sexually transmitted infections, including HIV. And we know that black women is still, are, is still dis- are still disproportionately impacted by HIV. In addition to the fact when we don't understand and value um, our reproductive system, we are less likely to experience pleasure. We are less likely to... Um, you know, honor ourselves and and treat ourselves as as the sacred space, you know, that it is. And because, you know, women have this disjointed relationship, you know, with sexuality in our reproductive system. It's almost as if we experience experience our sexuality, our reproductive health as as another individual outside of ourselves. Like it's something separate and it's not who we are when in fact it really is who we are. And and the shame and, and the stigma and the the messages from media, from culture, from race, from, you know, even when you look at black women going all the way back to sexuality, those mess I mean, not sexuality, back to slavery, excuse me, those messages that we were taught about our bodies, even, you know, growing up as young women, that it's dirty. It's something that's down there. And so because of these messages, we disassociate ourselves from our reproductive system and and ultimately our sexuality. And so because of that, I felt that this book was really, really, really important because, again, we're the bearers of life. And if we have a negative and unhealthy relationship with our reproductive system such that we're not touching our bodies, we're not taking care of our bodies, we don't get our annual exams, we don't have our pap smears and our pelvic exams, um, then we're not healthy. And when we're not healthy, we can't bring forth healthy babies into this world. And so the cycle continues to perpetuate, right? And so I felt that this book was extremely important, A, to break those negative intergenerational cycles that's, again, I've, I, that's been passed down, you know, um, throughout the years, but to also teach women how to value their bodies. And that value begins by first un- first addressing the shame and the stigma and the guilt that's been passed down, but then also to understand you know, how our body functions. Because a lot of times what I found is that women and young girls don't really understand 
the reproductive system. They don't understand the body parts and how they function. And if you don't understand the body parts and how they function, how can you take care of them? How can you have pleasure and experience the best pleasure? Because you don't know what the parts are and what you're working with. And so, again, to address, you know, um, the parts, the anatomy and physiology, to talk about the different um, conditions that we can experience, because a lot of women of color particularly experience, you know, fibroids, experience endometriosis, experience, you know, ovarian cysts and all of these different conditions, right? And then sometimes those conditions ultimately result in having to have a hysterectomy. And then also looking at that, because we've been told for so long as women that if you don't have a uterus, <laughs> you don't have an ovaries, or if you don't have fallopian tubes or a cervix, right, that you're not a woman, like you just lose who you are as a woman. And that's one of the myths that I dispel, you know, in that book. You're still a woman just because you don't have a uterus anymore. It doesn't take away the fact that you are still a woman, mm-hmm. right, and that you can still experience sexual pleasure. And so those are some of the things that I talk about in this book, and it's so important that we have these conversations because... Interestingly enough, here we are in, what, 2018, when I had my hysterectomy a year ago. It's, it's really interesting. It's like the secret society of women, you know, and you don't know about having a hysterectomy. You don't even know the process and how to heal and that there's support out there unless you find this secret society of women who's had a hysterectomy. And my, my, my thought process is why is it like that? This is a very natural thing that may occur for some women. And so we should be able to talk about these things. We should be able to provide support in an open, you know, form where women are not ashamed, feeling shameful and feeling less than a woman because they no longer have a uterus that's functioning properly, right? And so, again, B is, is dedicated to women to help us really understand. And also it's been helpful to men to help them understand what their daughters, their mothers, their wives, and their sisters, the women in their life, ex- you know, are experiencing too. And so I think that this book is so, so very important. Yeah, absolutely. One of the um, things you talk about in the book is learning to abstain. And you mm-hmm. start by reminding women that their body is a temple. Um, but I love it because you go on to talk about that critical exchange of energy that happens mm-hmm. when you allow someone inside of your being. Um, and finally, you talk about abstaining means abstaining from those triggers mm-hmm. and substances that help to put an individual at risk for transmission of HIV and STIs. I mean, that's so important because when I looked at the chapter, it was, you know, learn to abstain. And, um, you know, I think about abstaining. Well, I'm not going to have sex today or I'm not going to have sex for three months or I'm not Mm -hmm. going to, you know. But there's also that other thing that I know in speaking to a lot of young women, it seems that there's a lot of young people Um, who particularly engage out of fear of relationships, I think, engage in a lot of just very free-form kind of sex. They go to a party and they just have sex that night and there's no abstinence, there's no holding back. Um, And the triggers generally are drugs and alcohol. You know, you go to a party, you drink too much, you know, you know, if, 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 you, you know, you get turned on and you end up having sex, um, some, a lot of times that sex is unprotected. Um, and it's not just among, um, you know, poor, uneducated people. I mean, it's interesting to, like the other night I listened to the 
um, the interview on CNN with uh, Stormy Daniels and Anderson mm-hmm. Cooper, where she talked about having sex with um, President Trump. And um, when asked directly, you know, did you have protected sex? The answer was no. And so I thought about all of the work we try to do in sex education and, and thinking about the fact that, we, you know, poor people don't use condoms and they're, you know, susceptible to getting, you know, these sexually transmitted di- diseases and AIDS. But mm-hmm. here you are, some of the most um, powerful people in the world and well-educated are also making that same mistake. Oh, absolutely. HIV and sexually transmitted infections is not, you know, socioeconomic specific, right? And, and you make some very, you know, excellent points in that um, people across all ethnicities, races, cultures, socioeconomic status oftentimes make the choice not to use a condom. And so it's so important that we always keep that in mind when we're educating individuals, you know, that about, you know, abstinence and about condom usage. And and the one thing about abstinence, I think it's a very powerful message, right? But I think where we fall short with that message is that we don't teach people what abstinence looks like. So it's really not good enough just to say, oh, practice abstinence. I mean, a lot of us received that message growing up, especially, you know, in church, right? You know, and in school, don't have sex just be asking, like, what does that look like, though? Because I'm a very real human being with fleshly desires. I'm being pressured by my peers, or I want to have a relationship with this man or this woman, and I know one way to get that person is to have sex, right? Or because I've just experienced some significant trauma or hurt in my life, and I want to feel comfort, comforted, right? And sex is one of those things that helps to comfort people. Or when you talk about, you know, individuals who, you know, are having survival sex, right? So the message of abstinence is, is, is not always just, you know... Oh, just, tell me oh, about survival sex. Others. Tell me about yeah, so, survival sex. I've never heard of that term. Oh, survival sex. Okay, so for example, I may be a woman who is, you know, in an abusive relationship, right? And in order to survive Mm -hmm. and and, and not get beat upside the head or, you know, my life threatened or my kid's life threatened, I might have to have sex to save my life, right? Because this is what my partner wants from me at this particular time. So that's one form of survival sex. Another form could be, um, you know, I'm this single mother, I have, you know, children. Um, Unfortunately, at this particular time, I don't have a job. Or if I do have a job, it's not making enough to make the ends meet. And so I have this person over here who's offering me money to have sex. And so now I have to make a choice of feeding my children and myself, keeping my lights and my water on, or having it turned off because I choose not to have sex. And oftentimes, if I have sex without a condom, I may get more money, which also applies to commercial sex workers, right? This is the only way that I can support myself because I may be undocumented or I may be homeless, right? But I have to survive out here on these streets. So in order to survive, in order to get a little bit of money, right, I'm going to have sex. And again, if I do it without a condom or if I have anal sex and without a condom, right, then I may get more money from my my, 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 my person who's offering to pay me. And so that's, that's survival sex, right? And so oftentimes a lot of people that we see, we make assumptions and think that, they're, oh, they're just being promiscuous. Oh, they just want to have sex. 
And that may not be the case. They may be having sex to survive. And at that particular moment in time, that's the only way that they see how to survive until they're shown something a little bit differently. So when we talk about abstinence, right, we have to talk about the message of what that looks like and how to protect yourself, even within those contexts of those situations, because it's still all about harm or risk reduction. Wow. Wow. That's really, really interesting. I had never heard that term before, though I know the concept. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things I think about learning about terminologies. It it really can help you better understand. I mean, yeah, people would turn to that woman and say, you know, she's just a hoe. Mm-hmm. Um, but for many women, they're surviving. Yeah, you know? they're surviving. And that's the only way at that particular moment in time you know, that that they can see to survive. Because sometimes when we're in the forest, we can't see the trees, right? And so we're doing whatever we need to do in order to survive. And so for some women, you know, that is the only way. And even for some men, that's the only way at that particular moment in time that they can see how to survive until they are taught something a little bit differently. So even within, you know, again, those situations, we have to talk about harm reduction, right? So we know that anal sex is the most risky sex, followed by vaginal sex, followed by oral sex. And so with an individual like that, you know, you may want to say, okay, instead of having anal sex five times a week, can you cut it back to three times a week? That's still reducing their risk. Right. So, you know, and so those are the types of conversations that we have to have. And then also going back to triggers, I wanted to touch on that. You know, often we we think of alcohol and, and, and other substances like drugs as a trigger. Those are triggers. But then we also have to look at things that are triggers like the lack of money or uh, having too much money, being accustomed to a certain lifestyle can be your trigger, right? So, for example, if I'm a woman who's used to or a man who's used to having all of these fabulous things and, you know, this, that, and the other, when those things are being threatened and being taken away from me, I'm more willing and more likely to engage because that might be my trigger because I can't imagine myself not being able to drive a Jaguar or not having the expensive things that I need, right? And so that can also be a trigger. And then when we talk about triggers – you know, seeing an old flame, an old boyfriend or an old girlfriend can be a trigger. So it's really about those things that put you in a headspace that make you more likely or increase your chances of engaging in some type of sexual activity that you may not likely engage in if that trigger had not appeared. So you have to really try to figure out what those triggers are for yourself and then try to put some type of protective factor in place so that you're less likely to engage in a risky behavior. Right. Now, for some of our listeners who may not know, can you share with us why anal sex um, is riskier than vaginal sex? Yes. When we look at the biological structure of the anus, it's very thin, right, and and it's prone to ripping and tearing because the anus, unlike the vagina, does not lubricate itself naturally. And so because the walls of the anus or the lining of the anus is thin and it does not lubricate, um, <clears throat> which means, again, it's prone to ripping and tearing, and then you have those uh, uh, blood vessels that are right there, which creates a portal of entry for, you know, bacteria and viruses to directly into the bloodstream, which makes it very risky. Whereas the vagina, it's much thicker. The walls of the vagina or the lining of the vagina is much thicker 
than the lining of the anus. And then the uh, vagina also naturally lubricates itself, which helps to reduce the likelihood of the ripping and tearing during the friction of whether it's intercourse or other some other type of penetrative activity with a finger or a vibrator or a dildo or a butt plug or something like that. Okay, I understand. And that would be the reason that um, men particularly are um, more susceptible to HIV and AIDS because it can get into the bloodstream if they're having a lot of anal sex. Yes, I will say men who have sex with men, but also anybody who's the receptive partner, right? Meaning that anyone who's having a... Um, uh, a penis uh, or a toy or a finger inserted into the anus has the increased risk of transmission of some type of infection because they're receiving something into the anus. So it is while men who have sex men, men who have sex with men are at an increased risk, but women who are also engaging in anal sex as the receiving partner is at an increased risk as well. Right. Okay. Yes. Um... There's so much I want to ask you about. Uh, there's just so much. Um, uh, tell me about um, self-pleasure um, in the book. There was so much that I underlined, um, wanted to kind of jump around. Um, you know, for a long time, people have felt sex self-pleasure was a dirty thing. Mm-hmm. Um, some people feel that self-pleasure, you know, heightens your whole sexuality thing and makes you hungry for more. People mm-hmm. think that self-pleasure can is a betrayal of the marriage or the mm-hmm. relationship. Uh, mm-hmm. Share with us your thoughts. Self-pleasure for me, um, I feel like it is an important aspect of getting to know who you are and what you like and what you enjoy. Um, It's also a way of learning about your body. In fact, um, as a sex therapist, it's often something that is, you know, an activity that is, um, I don't want to say prescribed because that's not the word that I'm looking for, but an activity that we encourage that especially women who have anorgasmia or or who have an inability to experience an orgasm, we have them, you know, uh, do some self-pleasuring activities so that, first of all, they can become familiar with their body because oftentimes that could be one of the reasons why that they may not be experiencing pleasure in addition to the conditioning or the conceptual framework um, that they have around sexuality and self-pleasure. But self-pleasure is a way of learning your body and learning what brings you um, pleasure. But the reason why, again, a lot of people have a challenge with it is because for years, like you said, Nadine, we've been taught that um, sex, you know, masturbation, self-pleasure is a no-no. It goes against this, it goes against that. And and again, it's that conceptual framing of sexuality, whether it's from our family, whether it's from religion, whether it's from our culture, our race, whatever the case may be. We have all of these layers and things that we've been taught as children, right? And we operate from that standpoint as we become adults. And I, and I like to tell individuals, as an adult, as a child, you have no control over what messages you're given, what messages that you've received. But as an adult, you have the opportunity to begin to unpeel or unpack some of those messages and begin to reject those which no longer fit for you. Um, that's the beautiful thing about being an adult, you know. So I like to give my clients permission um, to be able to unpack all of that stuff and say, okay, yes, this this, this idea works for me. This idea does not work for me. And just really begin to kind of um, 
to, to challenge those things that we were taught. And of course, self-pleasure is one of those things that always comes up. And really, at the end of the day, my thoughts around self-pleasure is you have to be comfortable with your body. Being comfortable with your body begins with knowing the parts of your body, but not just knowing the parts of your body, but exploring the parts of your body, touching the parts of your body, and understanding how, you know, how they function. Um, and so, yes, I definitely, you know, encourage women to get a mirror mm-hmm. and look at your vulva and explore, because all vulvas do not look alike. They all look different, right? So right. understanding what yours looks like. Know your natural vaginal fluid, what comes out of your body. So that way, if something different comes out, you're able to go get it treated. You're able to have that conversation with your doctor because um, you know what's natural for your body. You know your body's natural scent because it's different. So that way, if you smell something a little bit different, you can say, hey, that's not right. I need to go get that checked out. But that all begins with touching your body and knowing your body. And then, of course, how can you effectively um, experience pleasure if you don't know first yourself what brings you pleasure? And how do you know that? Because you've taken the opportunity to pleasure yourself. Then you can have a conversation with your partner about what brings you pleasure and how to give you pleasure. I help you experience pleasure. Wow. Wow. That's just Great. I always, always love talking to you, Dr. Tamara. I want to, I mean, we could go on. There's just so much in this book. And so I want to really recommend to the listeners of the podcast uh, that they should really get themselves a copy. Where can they purchase the book? You can purchase the book directly from me at my website at www.com. DrTamaraGriffin.com, and that's spelled D-R-T-A-M-A-R-A-G-R-I-F-F-I-N.com. And if you order directly from me, of course, I will autograph the copy and send it to you. Or if you want to order it from a local bookstore, you have that option as well. Just go in and ask for the title, and they can order it for you. Or you can always order it off of Amazon or any other online retailer. Wonderful. I think it's a great book. I think... Everyone should have it. We should really look at it. Um, We should talk about whether or not we should be carrying it at Bedroom Candy because I just think it's such a great book. You also have, it's not just about the birds and the bees. I think, um, as I said before, I'd love to do another podcast talking about that book because it's about talking with your children about sex, correct? Yes, yes, yes. That also is a powerful book. And I think people will be pleasantly surprised when they read that book because it goes into a lot. It's not just about, well, it is about the spectrum of sexuality and sexual orientation, identity. It looks at gender, gender role. It also looks at dating and online dating. And then it talks about sex trafficking. So that's really a powerful book um, if you have teenagers or children or if you work with um, children as well. That book will be, and, and, it, and it also, one, one part of that book that I love, it talks about why we as adults have a challenge with talking to children about sexuality and with children learning about sexuality. So okay. yeah, it's, it's a phenomenal book as well. Great. I really would love to have you come back and talk about that book because I think, again, it would be a helpful conversation for our podcast listeners. Um, 
you know, everybody's got children or a niece or a nephew or a cousin or a young person that they're mentoring and having that book. So I suggest people buy it and maybe next month we can um, we can do, you know, have you back on to the podcast. But I wanted to end today by asking you one last question. And it's not about the book, Dr. Tamara, but it's about the Me Too movement. And wonder yes. if you have any closing thoughts about the Me Too movement, what you think you're seeing and experiencing, or just what your thoughts are on it in general. Uh, the Me Too movement, I think what I appreciate most about the Me Too movement is that it has opened the door for conversations about not just sexual assault, but sexuality in general. Um, and I also appreciate the movement um, <clears throat> in that it creates a space for those individuals who have been sexually assaulted to realize that they're not alone and that there is a space for um, spaces are being created for individuals to receive the support that they need because although the individual is the one that is directly impacted by the assault, mm -hmm. the community at large becomes impacted as well because that individual is a member of a community. Right. And so I think that it's so important that we continue to have these discussions about um, sexual assault. But one one thing that I would like to see more of with this movement are the male victims of sexual assault because oftentimes we sweep them under the rug. We push them to the side because as a man, quote unquote, whatever that you know, conceptual framework looks like in society as a male being, how do I come to the police or to a family member or to someone and say that I've been sexually assaulted, right? That space has not yet really been created and embraced in society. So I would really love to see more conversation around that as well. But the one thing I will say, and I have to be very honest because that's just how I move um, about the Me Too movement, um, in many ways, I sometimes wonder what um, what uh, does it um, belittle or minimize the experiences of women who have really been assaulted. I guess what I'm saying, because you have a lot of cases where women and men are coming forward, and it's not clear whether or not they've been assaulted. And so my concern with that is, does it minimize the experiences of the women who really have been impacted by a traumatic experience? And so I'm hoping that we are really using our discretion and handling these, these situations with care. And then also um, another thought that I have about the Me Too movement is that um, I, I, just, I just really hope that we're really truly and authentically looking at ways to address the alleged perpetrators' behaviors as well as providing support for women so that they can ultimately, again, be able to experience sexuality in a healthier way. Because talking about it doesn't do... I mean, it does good because it creates awareness, but then what? We're talking, right. we're talking, we're talking. Then what? What are we putting in place? Right. And so that would be my final, final um, concern with that. We have to make sure we have programs and interventions and services in place to support individuals who have um, experienced 
these traumatic experiences um, so that they can then, you know, ex- begin to ex- to heal first and foremost, but then to also begin to experience their sexuality in a, in a healthier way. Because we know that sexuality spans every dimension of our life. It's not just the physical piece. It's emotional. It's mental. It's social. It's legal. It's energetical. It's biochemical. It's institutional. It's political. It's legal, right? And so we have to make sure that a person is healthy, whole, and balanced in all of these dimensions of their life so that they can be productive and um, a healthy individual in society. So I guess those would be my thoughts about the Me Too movement. That was pretty awesome. Again, I think we could probably spend a whole podcast talking about Me Too. I would love to have maybe another sex therapist on. I think it'd be a great conversation to have, particularly in our community and the way it affects um, different communities differently and the intersection of race and gender and class, I think, are all um, interesting components. So, Dr. Tamar, you're always such a joy to talk to. I loved every minute of this interview. Thank you for being a guest on this week's episode of The Business of Pleasure. We would love to have you back in the near future. Look forward to seeing you this year again at our Bedroom Candy Convention and just wishing you all the best. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. I appreciate you. I appreciate you too. This has been another episode of The Business of Pleasure brought to you by Bedroom Candy Boutique Parties. Thank you. The Business of Pleasure is brought to you by Bedroom Candy Boutique Parties. To shop with us, visit us at www.bedroomcandy.com. To join our team of consultants who own their own home-based businesses, join us online and enter the code BOP2017. That will get you a 10% discount on your starter kit. Join us today.